<laughs> Loving it. Um, okay, so we're so far behind, it's ridiculous, but um, that's the polar vortex for you. Um, what we're going to do today is um, finally talk about Plato for a while um, and then watch Sherlock Jr., because that's part of what we're doing. And um, the issues in Sherlock Jr., as you will see, uh, how many people have seen it? How many people know it? Okay. Um, as you'll see, are um, in certain ways, in 90-year-old ways, like the issues in The Matrix and in Dark City and also in The Stuntman, which you'll see tonight. So um, it should be great. Um, if you've read um, The Bishop Barclay, one thing you should know is it's pronounced Barclay, not Berkeley, um, then um, one thing that we can talk about will also... Um, have to talk maybe on Thursday about the ways that um, a lot of these issues play out in Kant. But one thing that we can start with today is to say that um, Barclay's most famous statement, which um, you read, which is um, comes out in um, the essay on the principles of human knowledge as essay is Per chippy is how he would have pronounced it. To be is to be perceived. Um, what it means to exist, what ontology means, is to be perceived. There's nothing beyond that, nothing that transcends perception. For him, that's a major, major thing to say and a major, major surprise. I think that what you could say is that it's the um, as far an opposition to Plato and to the Platonic view that um, we'll be looking at in the Republic, as you can imagine. Did people find Barclay baffling, exciting, strange, obvious? What was your sense of him? Unread? <laughs> Midterm coming up? Take home, I know, but still. What did you guys think? Yeah. I know it was way too similar to Kant's reading. To? Kant's reading. The reading on Kant. Oh, okay. In what sense? I mean, for I me, mean, it just sort of repeated the same ideas. Like, perception is what causes space and, like, difference between space and time. Okay. Um, so, first of all, Kant is getting it from him, um, although not directly from him. Um, Barclay is 1715. Kant is um, in the 1780s. Um, and what Barclay is doing is um, there are things that Kant says um, in sharp disagreement with Barclay and with Hume, who is the um, person we won't really be reading, but I will talk about a little bit, um, who comes between Barclay and Hume. Um, what they agree on is a certain what's called idealistic philosophy. Um, that is the idea that the mind is prior to is more um, basic than the world. It's not that there's a universe out there and then minds that are capable of perceiving or misperceiving um, or um, interpreting the universe. It's that what goes on in the mind is all that we have access to. Now, a really sharp and important distinction between Kant and Barclay, and there are a lot of them, 
um, but the first and sharpest one is that Kant thinks that there's something called the thing in itself. Um, the famous uh, German phrase for this is the Ding an sich, the thing in itself. Um, and the thing in itself is what is in, what is outside of the empirical or the, or the phenomenal world. Um, the empirical or the phenomenal world is the world as we perceive it. Um, the world as it discloses itself to us or as we put it together. Kant makes a distinction, um, this is an important one in Kant, so I'll just mention it, um, between the thing in itself and objects. And what an object is, is um, what something is to the mind. An object is what's out there as the mind perceives it, but the thing in itself is something that we don't have direct access to. Barclay is going to ask, so if we don't have direct, or will have asked, has asked, if we don't have direct access to it, um, why should we even talk about it? Why should there be any discussion whatever of something called the thing in itself? Kant has a reason for saying there is a thing in itself. Um, that reason is that there has to be a cause for the phenomena that we experience. And for Kant, the idea of cause, this is the other place where he will sharply disagree with Hume and with Berkeley. For Kant, the idea of cause is um, probably the most important single thing that he can try to rescue from the arguments against the idea of causation that you get in Hume and Berkeley. Um, so, we won't, I think we'll talk more about this on um, Thursday on the question of causality and causation, but for Kant, it's a really, really crucial idea. What Kant said was that he had been reading Hume and that Hume awoke him from his dogmatic slumbers. Um, that is that the challenge that Hume who, again, for our purposes, is close enough to Berkeley that you can see this as the challenge of Berkeley. Um, the challenge of Berkeley and of Hume to his view of how the universe worked, what you could perceive about the outside world and so on, the challenge that they presented um, was tremendous enough to cause Kant to rethink everything. Um, and to come up with what's probably the most important philosophical exposition of um, the mind's relation to the world since antiquity. Um, so, but it was prodded, goaded by Berkeley and Hume that Kant did that. So the crucial difference is that Berkeley is, in saying that everything's in the mind, he doesn't really have to give and doesn't really give um, an explanation of how the mind puts the world together. Um, what he says is there are ideas, they come together, they're caused by God. Um, the things that, everything that we call reality is part of a mental world. You can see how a movie like The Matrix is very much about these issues. And um, all that we can talk about is what exists in a perceptual or a mental world. 
And the question who's doing the perceiving for Barkley is not a question that he really has to worry too much about. It's a question that as long as there's some perception going on, um, and that perception can be in the mind of God, that perception can be in God, as long as something is being perceived, it exists. Um, Kant is going to go much, much farther in analyzing what it would mean to see coherence in the world, to see the world as something coherent, and how that could happen, how it would be possible to see the world as coherent. Now, what this has to do with film, I really, we're going to go right to Plato in a second, but what this has to do with film is the fact that what you get in film is extremely artificial mosaics of what look like natural experiences. A way to say this is to say that it takes forever. It takes hours and hours and hours to shoot two or three minutes of film. And the reason it takes so long is that everything has to look natural, which requires an enormous amount of setting up because um, none of it actually occurs naturally. And in particular, the place that you can see this most obviously in film, most um, clearly in film, is whenever you have a cut. So when there's a cut, the kinds of, we've talked a little bit about cuts and we'll talk more about them, but the kind of thing that will happen um, in just the most standard sort of cut within a scene in a film is that you'll, for example, see someone shooting a cue ball on a pool table and you'll see them shoot the ball and then you'll see the ball hit another ball and then you'll see that ball go into a pocket. And you might, there might be two cuts or three cuts in that sequence of events. First, someone shoots, the, moves, the, moves the cue. We see the tip of the cue hit the ball. We then cut to the ball a beat later, hitting um, one of the balls on the table. We then cut to another angle of that ball going into the side pocket. All those things are occurring separately, like Markley's clocks. That is to say, these things, we're not watching a single continuous action. We're not watching a ball hitting another ball, causing that ball to go into the corner pocket. What we're watching are three or four different things that are put together so that it looks like a single continuous action, so that it looks like we're watching a cue causing the cue ball to move, causing that ball to move another ball, causing the second ball to fall into a pocket. It looks like we're seeing continuous action. We put it together as continuous action. And what we're putting together over the cuts is something like a continuous chain of causes. We see an incident or an event that's happened. A ball hits another ball, which causes that ball to go into the pocket on the pool table. We see an incident, and we identify it as a single incident because we string together the things that we see as a chain of causes. And because we're stringing them together as a chain of causes, we imagine we're seeing one event. But we're not seeing one event. We're seeing a bunch of different things that are stitched together 
over the cuts that we're watching as we're watching the scene. So what's happened is that our idea of a cause, the crucial and central idea that we have that things cause each other, has enabled us to tell what it is that we've just seen. But in fact, what looks like one thing causing another thing causing a third thing, in reality, whatever reality is, but in reality, we haven't seen one thing causing another thing causing a third thing. We've seen three different setups. The reason that on film, rather than on stage, you can reliably count on, let's say, Jackie Gleason as Minnesota Fats making the shot when he needs to make the shot, or Paul Newman um, playing against him, making the shot when he needs to make the shot, is because all you have to do is shoot him hitting the cue ball, and it doesn't matter whether it's a good shot or not, as long as it's reasonable enough, as, long, as long as the ball goes ahead straightforwardly enough, we can then cut to another setup watching the cue ball hit another ball. And as long as that works well enough, we can then cut to a third setup watching that ball going into the side pocket. And if, it, if, any, part, if any component of that, of that triple set of things goes wrong, it doesn't matter because we can reshoot that component. So that what we're seeing is a set of things that look like one is causing another is causing a third. But in fact, all those things are happening separately. Um, it's the mind that's putting them together. That sounds like Barclay. But the mind puts them together because it has this absolute and irreducible idea of cause, which is something that Barclay is trying to deny. Do people remember what Barclay says about what cause really is when we say that, for example, that fire causes pain? or that fire causes heat? Ah, note, much Barclay on midterm. Much, much, much Barclay on midterm. Tons and tons. Okay, so lots of Barclay in the midterm. Um, think about the difference between Barclay and Kant. We will talk more about that on um, Thursday. Um, so just to remind you, the midterm is going to be a take home. And um, I think what it's going to be, I'm still trying to think exactly how to do this, but I think what it will be is a two-hour assignment. That is, um, you should write for two hours and not longer. Um, so it's not one of those, um, I have 24 or 36 hours or whatever, so I'm really going to pull an all-nighter and work really hard on it. Um, that means there's an honor code to this. Um, don't take more than two hours, and, um, and so just don't. Um, beyond that, there'll um, be a couple of pleasant surprises. So, no, I think you'll like them. They'll be good surprises. Not bad surprises, good surprises. Um, and that will be next week. Okay, let us go to um, Plato. Again, because Plato is really setting the... Um, terms seeing the issues, 
that um, all the later philosophers are going to be taking up in one way or another. Alfred North Whitehead very famously said that all of Western philosophy is a footnote to Plato. Um, so here's the text to which everything else is a footnote. So if you go, let's go to the Allegory of the Cave, which I hope you have a copy of with you. Um, book seven of the Republic. Remember that it's um, Socrates who's speaking and he's describing the um, conversation that he had um, in which he explained the doctrine of Platonic ideas. Again, this means that what, we're, what we have here is actually Plato's views, not Socrates. Plato's putting them in Socrates' mouth. Um, they're also important the way they're being described here because one of the things that Plato is doing is having Socrates unknowingly or semi-knowingly um, have a conversation about what's going to happen to him, which is, do people know what happened to Socrates? Anyone? Yeah, Zach. Yes. Well, first he was put on trial. Right. Why? Uh, well, the charges were corrupting the youth and, uh, well, blasphemy, basically, uh, presenting false gods, mm -hmm. defending false gods. Um, and that's because, you know, his, he liked to go around and uh, question people and show that they didn't know what they thought they knew. Uh, so and in particular, they didn't know what piety was. Right, well, in one of the Yeah, but it was Euthyphro who um, reports him. Was it? Yeah. Oh. Okay. So anyhow, go on. Yeah. So he is eventually convicted by a small majority, much smaller than he expected, and he's put into prison, but the, the, the jury thought, you know, he was just going to sneak out and go into exile rather than take the hemlock uh, death sentence uh, that he was given. Um, so while in prison, he has some time because uh, he has to be killed after a ship gets back for some, I forget the reason. Yeah. Uh, so he has some time to talk with his followers, like Trito, um, uh, after which the, that dialogue is named, and then uh, then Fido presents an account of what had passed in that dialogue, though it's not supposed to be at the present moment. Uh, and then he drinks hemlock and dies. <laughs> Yeah, so the, the major thing that happens is that Socrates is accused of corrupting the youth of Athens because he's challenging um, received wisdom, challenging their pieties. And he is put on trial, convicted, and sentenced to death. He's actually given an opportunity to offer a different sentence, which is how they did it then. Um, that is, um, once he's convicted, he can... Um, offer one penalty and the prosecution can offer another penalty and then the people who convicted him can vote. So he suggests that he pay a trivial fine instead 
So it's basically either kill me or I'll just pay the $2. And um, so they barely vote to kill him. Um, but the point is that he's a person who challenges their um, unexamined beliefs. And um, he is put to death for doing so. And so this moment, the allegory of the cave in the Republic, is Plato essentially writing Socrates, predicting what's going to happen to him. Not saying, here's what's going to happen to me, but um, the dramatic irony here is that when you read what, what Socrates is describing will happen to the person who leaves the cave and then returns to it, Plato is having Socrates describe someone who, in fact, Socrates will turn out to be. So, um, go to the beginning of it, and he says, here's the setup. Behold human beings living in an underground den which has a mouth open towards the light and reaching all along the den. Here they have been from their childhood and have their legs and necks chained so that they cannot move and can only see before them, being prevented by the chains from turning round their heads. Above and behind them, a fire is blazing at a distance, and between the fire and the prisoners, there is a raised way, and you will see, if you look, a low wall built along the way, like the screen which marionette players have in front of them over which they show the puppets. So um, there's a rather complicated topography, to the cave. It's not as simple as you might at first think, um, but there's a cave. Um, at one end of the cave, there's light coming from the outside, um, and some of that light illuminates the entirety of the cave. Um, at the other end of the cave, there are chained prisoners who are have their backs to the light that's coming from the mouth of the cave. Um, and so they can only look, it's going to turn out, at the cave wall in front of them instead of the mouth of the cave behind them. Um, but not only is the mouth of the cave behind them, but there's also artificial light behind them. That artificial light is coming from a fire. And the artificial light coming from the fire is illuminating um, a raised platform, um, a raised way, and there's a wall there, and um, so the light is lighting up whatever will be on the wall and casting its shadows on the wall of the cave in front of the prisoners who are sitting there. So there are two sources of light, an artificial light which is nearer and therefore seems brighter, the light of the fire, and natural light, which actually comes from outside of the cave, and they're prisoners who can't see the, any of the sources of light. They can only see its reflection, its illumination on the wall of the cave. And on the wall in front of the fire, so we'll talk about the, why don't we talk about um, the platform in front of the fire and the wall of the cave so as to distinguish between them. Um, on the platform, there are people carrying all sorts of vessels and statues and figures of animals made of wood and stone and various materials which appear over the wall. Some of them are talking, others silent. So you should there see that whoever these people are, they're not like the prisoners in the cave. 
but what they are is like with marionette or puppeteers, they're holding things that the fire can illuminate, but they themselves are hidden. So their shadows, the, the people who are holding these things, their shadows are not seen on the wall of the cave, but the shadows of what they're holding is seen. Um, some of them are talking, others silent, so although we don't see them, um, nor do we see their shadows, we can hear them if they're talking. You have shown me a strange image, and they're strange prisoners. Like ourselves, I replied. So those looking at the wall in the cave are like us in this world in which we live. And they see only their own shadows or the shadows of one another, which the fire throws on the opposite wall of the cave. So that's all they can see are the shadows. They can't, they're not allowed to move their heads, so they can't even look at each other. And they see the shadows of the objects being carried. And um, now let's suppose that they can talk to each other, even though they can't look to each other. Um, if they can talk to each other and say what they're seeing, what they would think was the shadows were real things, even though they're only shadows. And they would give those shadows the names of real things and therefore think they were naming something real. And now let's suppose the cave has an echo, or now it's a prison. The prison had an echo, which came from the other side. And so what they're hearing is the voices of the men who are carrying the objects, and their voices are echoing off the back of the cave, so they think the sound is coming from in front of them. That is coming from the shadows that they're looking at. So all of this should just remind you essentially of a movie theater. That is that you have light projecting shadows against a wall with the sound, or against a screen with the sound seeming to come because of the acoustics of the cave from where the projection is occurring. Um, and so they think these shadows are speaking, but they're not. Um, they are simply, literally nothing but the shadows of the images. So shadows of images, not even shadows of reality, but shadows of images, because what the people carrying in the wall are um, figures, statues, and figures of animals made of wood and stone and various materials. So it's not that they're animals or even people whose shadows we can see, but only these representations, these models, these statues and figures made of various materials. Um, and now look again, Socrates goes on, and see what will naturally follow if the prisoners are released and disabused of their error. So if they get released, what will happen? Now, again, that release is essentially what Socrates has been offering the youth of Athens, um, Plato among them. Um, so if they are released and disabused of their errors, if they no longer make these errors, well, what will happen? At first, when any of them is liberated and compelled suddenly to stand up and turn his neck round, and walk and look towards the light, he will suffer sharp pains. The glare will distress him, and he will be unable to see the realities of which, in his former state, he had seen the shadows. So, you get up, you're stiff, you've just been unchained, you turn towards the light, and um, 
your body feels the pain of its stiffness from being chained up, and the light is too bright for your eyes, and it's a glare. And um, so it's not a pleasant experience to be freed from the prison of the cave. Um, it's unpleasant in lots of ways. Now conceive someone saying to him that what he saw before was an illusion, but that now, when he is approaching nearer to being and his eyes turn towards more real existence, he has a clearer vision. What will be his reply? And you may further imagine that his instructor is pointing to the objects as they pass and requiring him to name them. Will he not be perplexed? Will he not fancy that the shadows which he formerly saw are truer than the objects which are now shown to him? So he turns to the light itself or maybe to the actual models whose shadows he's seen before. His eyes are dazzled. He's unhappy. Now he's told this is reality, and what he's seeing is something that he can't accommodate himself to. And um, he will be perplexed and think he's not seeing what's true. He's seeing something that's false. So again, we're seeing film after film um, because it's the nature of film, not, not particularly because I chose these films for this reason. But we're seeing film after film where the question of what is the source of the images that people are seeing is being raised. Um, why are people living in the worlds that they're living in? What is the source of what it is that they're seeing? If they look to that source, will they be seeing something realer or less real than the images that they're seeing? Again, we could say um, very, very um, schematically, do you see more if you look at the projector or if you look at the screen? And here it's as though Socrates is saying, look at the projector if you want to know what's really going on. And that, there's a huge question whether that's um, an adequate attitude towards what goes on in film. So if he is compelled to look straight at the light, will he not have a pain in his eyes which will make him turn away? to take refuge in the objects of vision which he can see and which he will conceive to be in reality clearer than the things which are now being shown to him. So won't you rather look at what's being lit up by the light rather than the light itself? Of course. And suppose once more that he is reluctantly dragged up a steep and rugged ascent and held fast until he is forced into the presence of the sun himself. So he's pulled out of the cave into the presence of the sun. Is he not likely to be pained and irritated? When he approaches the light, his eyes will be dazzled, and he will not be able to see anything at all of what are now called realities. So he sees the sunlight itself. It's no longer the firelight, but the sun itself. And won't he be completely blinded by this? Um, he certainly won't be able to see it right away. He will require to grow accustomed to the sight of the upper world, Socrates goes on, and first he will see the shadows best, next the reflections of men and other objects in the water, so suddenly we have water and mirrors outside of the cave, and then the objects themselves. Then he will gaze upon the light of the moon and the stars and the spangled heaven, 
and he will see the sky and stars by night better than the sun or the light of the sun by day. So over and over again, the brighter something is, the harder it is to see. Last of all, he will be able to see the sun and not mere reflections of him in the water, but he will see him in his own proper place and not in another, and he will contemplate him as he is. Okay, certainly. He will then proceed to argue that this is he who gives the seasons and the years and is the guardian of all that is in the visible world and in a certain way the cause of all things which he and his fellows have been accustomed to behold. So he would finally realize that everything he's seen has its source from the sun. The very possibility of seeing comes from the sun. And when he remembered his old habitation and the wisdom of the den and his fellow prisoners, do you not suppose that he would felicitate himself on the change and pity them? Because now he's seeing the truth. So, yes, indeed, he would be happy about himself. And if they were in the habit of conferring honor among themselves on those who are quickest to observe the passing shadows and to remark which of them went before and which followed after and which were together and who were therefore best able to draw conclusions as to the future, do you think that he would care for such honors and glories or envy the possessors of them? Would he not say with Homer, better to be the poor servant of a poor master? So if people are really good at looking at shadows, but he's looking at the sun, do you think he's going to care about those who are rewarded for being best in looking at shadows? And um, of course he wouldn't care. Now, says Socrates, imagine once more such a one suddenly coming out of the sun to be replaced in his old situation. Would he not be certain to have his eyes full of darkness? So having seen the sun, he now goes back into the cave, and he can't see at all because it's too dark. And his blindness <coughs> in the dark would make all those in the cave feel contempt for him and think that going out of the cave had taught him nothing, but it simply blinded him to what was going on in the cave. And we should stop here because we have to um, go right to Sherlock Jr. What they would seek to do to him if he tried to convince them that he saw the truth and they didn't is that they would seek to kill him. Okay, Sherlock Jr., for those who haven't seen it, we'll pick this up on Thursday, but Sherlock Jr., for those who haven't seen it, um, is 1924. It's Buster Keaton, um, silent movie, and in part a movie about movies. And as you're watching it, you should ask yourself how um, Keaton got the special effects that he got in this movie in 1924.